and welcome to the Famous Five podcast, in which we share with you a Famous Five adventure written by Enid Blyton. Today's book is Five Go Down to the Sea. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to be subject to spoilers, please turn off now and come back when you've read it. Hi. Hi. Welcome to, what's this now, episode 12. Not only is it episode 12, but it's our one year birthday. Whoa. We've been doing this a year, Jen. Oh my gosh, that year has flown by. I know, hasn't it just? And to celebrate our one year birthday, we've got a very special guest. We've got Charlie Revelsmith joining us. Hello everyone. Hi. We left him on the moors in Five Go Off to Camp. You certainly did. It's been a long time. Picked him up on the way to Cornwall. <laughs> that was a bitter winter out on those moors. Oh, you were with Mr. Luffy, though, weren't you? I was, yes. So he was keeping me company. Thank goodness. Yeah. How are you, Charlie? Are you well? I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. Having a nice evening here in Bristol. should say that we're recording this on the evening of the first England match in the World Cup, and none of us could care that we're missing it. Oh, do you know, it hasn't even crossed my mind that that was <laughs> that, that was happening. That was. I will probably, I will probably hear some kind of drunken loutishness later on, and that will be about. That will be my other reminder that that England are playing this evening. That's actually a great reminder because our bedroom is on a road that many happy drunk pub people walk home on on Friday and Saturday nights. So I always have to sleep with the windows closed on those nights to block out the sound. And on weekdays, I always have the windows open. But tonight, I'll have to have the windows shut, regardless of the result. But I I usually don't give two hoots about the football. But this year, I'm quite excited because we're having a sweepstake at work. And I've got a really big wall chart. And every time there's a game, I write the scores on it. And I am really enjoying that. So for me, this is a great World Cup. I haven't watched any games. Like... God be good, I won't have to watch any, or not even highlights, but I will get to write on that wall chart every day. Excellent. It's good to have a role. I always think I find things much more enjoyable when it comes to sport, if there is something that I can... Yes. I was like, oh, and Charlie, you're allowed to join in on this because you can draw a picture or something <laughs> that will uh, that will keep you happy yeah it's nice to have a role yeah. and in the sweepstake I have Nigeria and Costa Rica so I'm probably not gonna win but I think those are both cool countries so I'm I'm rooting for them both I'm pretty sure they both lost their first game already but you can always come back from a first loss no big deal come on it's always nice to root for an underdog generally isn't yeah. it yeah so. and Nigeria have got a really cool kit so I blind picked my teams very well. I have to say that I have been watching some of the football, not on purpose, just because it's on and being quite heavily pregnant now, I can't leave the room as quickly as I used to be able to. (laughs) It's harder to reach for that remote. (laughs) (laughs) We were watching Spain versus Portugal and there is a player called Nacho. And I started getting very cross going, well, that can't be his real name. He wouldn't be christened Nacho. (laughs) So I googled him and read his entire Wikipedia page and spent the rest of the match telling Mike facts about <laughs> Nacho. I was going, do you know that he's a type 1 diabetic? So you have to have a bit of sympathy for Mike. And he had never scored an international goal until that match. 
and I'd been talking about him the entire match and then he scored an absolutely blinding goal. So I think I'm just bringing Nacho a little bit of luck there. You know, occasionally it is those little sort of facts like that that can occasionally get me drawn into sport. Yeah, sport's strange. It's not... It's not as good as reading. There we go. There's a link. It's not for me is what I've always thought about. It's go and have your fun, but leave me out of it. Yeah, I'll stick with my writing scores on the wall chart roll. Yeah, that's a good role to have. I think as we're here together, we should probably talk about Five Go Down to the Sea. A magical tale. It sounds like a good idea to me. A magical tale set in a specific place, which none of the rest of the books have been. Uh, when they go out on the moors, they just go on the moors. They never say where. We've never had a place yeah. name that's been a real place until now with Cornwall. Do you think Ina Blyton went to Cornwall and was so inspired that she just sent the five there? Yeah, it really has been that specific, hasn't mm. it? That And it, was, it wasn't just that we know the name of the village and things like that. Even though we know they're made up places, they sound plausibly Cornish as well, which is unusual and as far as correct me if i'm wrong in a future episode i don't think that she does it again i think this is the only example of it actually being this specific yeah because she could easily have said on the coast but she didn't she she set it very firmly in cornwall i'm sure she had her reasons shall we dive into the book we shall okay in chapter one Dick has a puncture, which might make them miss the train. They're off to Cornwall, to Tremannan Farm. The porter says that there's no pier, ice cream cellars, concert parties or cinema. And the porter says say hello to his Uncle John Polpenny, which we later find out is completely irrelevant. And I've noted about the man in the shop buying the blancmange powder from Five on a Hike Together. Oh yes, where she went into extraordinary amount of detail on this guy buying blancmange and then he's never mentioned he becomes the star for a couple of pages and then vanishes yeah Which i think it has happened she has form with that so that's happened a couple of times i think in the books yeah i didn't realize until just now that we hear all about the porter and his uncle and his name and then never again but when we learn that his uncle's name's the same as his, John Polpenny, so we know that this porter, maybe we'll see him again now we've got a name. We hear Julian's truly excellent rhyme, by Trey, Paul and Penn, you may know the Cornish men. Now, I tried looking into, finally, if that came from anywhere else, and I couldn't really... Did Enid Blyton invent that for the book, or was it a common known saying? Because it certainly is true of Cornish names. Maybe Julian wrote it and then yeah. he wanted to share it. Maybe Enid Blyton was so impressed with coming up with this rhyme, this explains why this book is very specifically set in Cornwall, so she could throw it in there. Oh, so she could just do that. That is a great theory because books have been written on I tell you what, I have written, put details into books to build up to punchlines, which were a lot weaker than that one, it has to be said. Amazing. Okay, so so really it's Enid Blyton's really proud of that. Maybe, yes. Saying, and so she should be. That's a great theory. However, in the 1970s TV version, Dick follows that up with, 
And no matter where we roam, that is still an awful poem. Yeah. Which I... <laughs> does not scan and is worse than the original poem. And actually, it's not a bad poem. It's a good poem. Yeah. Back off, Dick. So, come on, Dick. Calm yeah. down. <laughs> on the train, Anne is adamant there will be no adventure this holiday. And when Julian suggests that if there is even a hint of adventure, they'll ignore it. The others half agree, but then Timmy distracts them by being scared of a tunnel. They arrive at Polwilly Holt Station and set off the four miles to the farm. In Chapter 2, they arrive in the village for lemonade and orangeade. Jen, they're having a drink? I know, thank goodness, because actually when they arrive at Polwilly Holt, it's a great name, um, Dick says, we ought to have brought masses more to drink. Yes, you should, in this book and every book. That's the tagline for the series of books. Yeah, and I've written on the note here, bring more fluids. They are not hydrated enough. I worry for these children. That is an ongoing theme for me. Well, do you remember a while ago that I said to you, do you think these adventures are actually just the creation of dehydrated children hallucinating on Kieran Island and actually in the very last book they're going to wake up and it's the first adventure on Kieran Island when they just didn't have enough to drink and they've imagined and hallucinated all the adventures they've all just been sitting out for the sun for too long yeah the shopkeeper refers to them as foreigners even though Julian says his mother had a great aunt who was Cornish they arrive at the farm Mrs Penruthlin has made a meal for them although Dick is confused by grated carrot Come on, Dick. I mean, the the title of it is pretty much a description of what it is. It isn't that, that complicated. Mrs. Penruthlin is a feeder. They will eat well here. Mr. Penruthlin is tall, broad and a bit scary and hairy. Anne thinks his hands would feel like a cat. Yes. I put a note in here. <laughs> I've written Anne on top form in brackets. Weird. That's yes. Yeah, I love I love little insights into Anne's way of thinking because it's just so off the wall. I, I think love right it. at the end of the the books, we should do a compilation of Anne's weirdest moments. Oh, we should. Yeah, Anne's greatest hits. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually I'm writing this down. Also, in in this chapter, when they actually stop off in the little cafe and they have a drink there. I was amazed by the weird snaps of rudeness the kids do to the uh, adults in there. Like one of them talks about them having, like one of the adults talks about them having, like being able to hear the sloshing in their stomachs. He was like, that's very rude to say. And then it just goes on, everything has normal. I was like, that's a bit strange. I've never heard them be that rude to grown ups before. And then I realized that awful thing, which everybody hates about the famous five, is that. Because they're posh kids, they can talk to working class adults in the rudest yeah, ways imaginable. It is, they don't hear them talking to any other adult. They at least have a degree of respect talking to them if they're on their same level. But unfortunately, all of that stuff is still in there in the uh, in the books, and it just it sticks out as a bit un- unpleasant sometimes. Mister Penruthlin also talks in a series of grunts. He has a flyer that says the Barneys are coming to town. They're travelling players who use barns for the shows, and Clopper the Horse is the star of the show. He sits down and crosses his legs. Amazing. In Chapter 3, after tea, they spend time in the farmyard. Dick mends his puncture, and Timmy plays with the farm dogs. 
An odd, dirty, barefooted child appears, and the children are not very welcoming, which is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> the boy is Jan, and Mrs. Penruthlin sends him away with some food for him and his granddad. She tells the children that his granddad's father was a wrecker, and he has strange tales to tell. The wreckers used to entice ships onto the rocks using false lights to steal the treasure. They wander around the farm some more and encounter Jan again. Finally, they head to bed, and as Julian is falling asleep, he can hear someone peeping in the window. It was Jan! They wake up the next morning to a huge breakfast. I don't know if anyone have, because I, when I grew up, I grew up in Cornwall and I'd always heard stories about wreckers intentionally wrecking boats um, and salvaging them for whatever they were, whatever goods they had on board. I had no idea that it never actually happened. It's always been sort of, what? for want of a better word, I was, I was going to say an urban legend, but it's kind of like a rural legend, really. It never seemed to happen. There were wreckers. There were people who would go and sail out and uh, ships which were already sunk. They would go and salvage things. But no one was intentionally drawing ships onto the rocks. It doesn't seem like it would even work. And you would probably, if it was a, the conditions were bad enough to sink a ship, it would probably sink your boat as well as you were going to try and uh, salvage it. So, yeah, the wreckers are, they're not real things. Charlie, you've just ruined Christmas. So Sorry, I think I might have ruined this book as well. <laughs> oh, well, do you know what? I'd never heard of wreckers before. And to me, the amount that we heard about them, wreckers, 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 it reminded me of the spook trains. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, the spook trains. Spook trains, spook trains, spook trains. That's what this book was like. Wreckers, 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 wreckers. Uh, so that's interesting to find out that actually they are a real story. Uh, she didn't just make that up with her little poem, but they probably weren't real, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm not sure I can continue with the podcast. Yes, it's <laughs> like giving up now. I had no idea that they weren't a real thing. And obviously, as soon as you started talking and explaining it, of course they weren't a real thing. But having grown up with the Famous Five, I mean, I grew up in Coventry, you couldn't really get further from the sea. But having grown up with the Famous Five, like, wreckers are a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I oh, mean... Oh, gosh, this is going to take some working through. I don't think this isn't the only appearance that they make. I think they are. I think we not... get some later on. Yes. But yeah, I was surprised they only very recently found this out. So there, sorry about that for. <laughs> for right. For... Well, everybody just take a minute to gather. <laughs> and I will be working through these issues at a later date. Well, that suspension of disbelief has collapsed. <sighs> I'm shook. As the youngsters say. <laughs> um, right, chapter four, I suppose. We're going to carry on with this nonsense. Now it's not real. <laughs> In chapter four, the children are followed around by Jan for several days. Timmy loves Jan, and surely that should be enough for the children. They send him away and head for the beach and discuss all the caves. They see Jan in part of the cove. Later on, having not seen him appear, Anne worries about the incoming tide. They're all a little worried, and back at the farm, Mrs. Penruthlin tells them not to worry. Jan is cleverer than they think. After tea, they spot Jan, and because they're glad he didn't drown, they share their sweets with him. He invites them to see his granddad. Julian tells them that they will tomorrow, and 
As he tells him to clear off, he also asks him how he escaped the cove. Jan says he took the wrecker's way and disappears. Puzzling. And it seems now that Jan has currency, in inverted commas, i.e. a mystery, they don't dislike him as much. Mm, convenient. They do a full 360 on him now that he's interesting. I mean, to be honest, they didn't really care all that much if he did drown. <laughs> I mean, they didn't try, you know, alerting anybody that the boy might just have been washed out to sea. They just went home and <laughs> ate some more and then were like, I wonder if that boy survived. <laughs> In chapter five, before the five go to church, they pod some peas for Mrs. Penruthlin. They tie Timmy up outside the church and Jan appears, looking like he's going to hang out with Timmy, much to George's annoyance. Now, I don't think the famous five have ever been to church before. No, they haven't. It really struck me as unusual. And this is why I was quite certain that almost all of this chapter was, I think that she's probably set herself a 50,000 word count for the, the books is why they all generally land around about mm. 200 pages long and she had come massively under that and needed to pad out so we have whole descriptions of things which it doesn't play any role at all in it especially in this chapter where they're podding peas and then yan shows up and yan is keep on telling them they have to go and visit her, his granddad and they're saying we'll do it later and then it's, we'll go to church and then we'll do it later and it's like why aren't we just going to meet the granddad why is this taking so long they've got loads of peas to shell first yes, <laughs> yes. there's just so many peas <laughs> it, it just seemed very transparent that she had inadvertently finished her story a bit too long uh, too early and was just trying to pad it out with just anything to fill up some pages agreed after lunch jan shows up to take them to the small hut and they meet his granddad he tells them all about the wreckers and the ships crashing to their death and sailors drowning lovely he takes them to where the wreckers light can be seen the only place on land it can be seen from granddad says that he saw it on stormy nights when he was minding his sheep George says he must be glad he didn't see it now. Grandad looked at George and his eyes were scared and strange. He lowered his voice and spoke to George as if she were a boy. Young man, he said, the light still flares on dark and stormy nights. The place is a ruin and jackdaws build in the tower. But three times this year I've seen that light again. Come a stormy night it'll flare again. I know it in my bones. I know it in my bones. Ooh. Ooh, this is where the story really actually started getting me at this point because i love all of this this kind of the gothic elements of this spooky haunted tower and there's something that it, it's almost a little bit kind of um especially because it's called more as well daphne du maurier kind of this whole kind of windswept barren coastal landscape that something is amiss in there love it i could not get enough of that that kind of stuff by the way as you guys have the same book do you have that same illustration on page 52 where granddad's pointing at the tower all four children are looking concerned and timmy just looks like a spring kitten his face is just so like pure and empty that is a face of a dog that has seen a squirrel <laughs> off in the opposite direction to where they're all looking. Yeah. Oh my gosh, isn't it? Uh, it's a lovely illustration. Yeah. It's just so Eileen A. Soper. She's 
She yeah. occasionally, I mean, she always draws them looking incredibly old, but that might just be the fashion of the times. <laughs> but there is something that she, in just a few lines, she is able to capture something really quite nice in her, all of her pictures. Yeah. We've covered the age, especially of uh, Julian and in a shirt and tie at breakfast one illustration, but they are, they are beautiful drawings. Yes. Uh... In chapter six, the children are suitably unnerved, but when Jan says he's seen the lights too, his granddad tells him otherwise. Dick asks about the wrecker's way, but granddad said he swore not to tell, even though Jan said that he knew the way. Granddad tells them more memories and they eat cake. Anne likes Jan. On the way back home, they talk about the lights, and George says if there's a stormy night, they should go and look for the light. Julian asks about the no adventure agreement, but before a resolution happens, the Barneys arrive. Yay! Yay! The Barneys wave to the watching children. One man dressed in velvet and lace with a sword at his side and a wig of curly hair threw a leaflet or two to them. They read them with interest. The Barneys are coming. They will sing, they will dance, they will fiddle. They will perform plays of all kinds. Edith Wells, the nightingale singer. Bonnie Carter, the old-time dancer. Janie Costa and her fiddle. John Walters, finest tenor in the world. George Roth, he'll make you laugh. And others. We also present Clopper, the funniest horse in the world. The Barneys are coming. What a lineup! This sounds like the best night out ever. Doesn't it? It just, I love the idea of them all just being this sort of traveling band of performers setting up in barns. I try, I'm not sure if this is something which really happened, but I've no reason to doubt that it did at some point. It just sounds like a really fun way to spend an evening. I wish it still happened now. Or maybe it does. Who knows? Yeah, maybe it does. I certainly know that theatrical players would go town to town but they would perform kind of more religious plays and things like that and they would definitely travel i mean i'm going back way in history so i don't see why you wouldn't travel town to town because you're gonna get um you know if you go to your audience well we see it now in with traveling shows in theaters they start off in london and then they tour to the provinces to get bigger audiences so i don't see why you wouldn't go to small venues which are barns because there wouldn't have been the venues that we have now for things you know art centers and the like yeah i mean and it all it all works perfectly because obviously if it's raining you're sheltered but you have got usually bales of hay and things like that you can make seating out of so i'm sure it must have happened yep no such thing as health and safety yes definitely I'm sure that it must have happened. I hope it did. It sounds lovely. And Dick gives us a pearl of wisdom here where he says, uh, after the wagons have passed, their show may not be first rate, but it's sure to be funny. (laughs) We know for a fact that Julian, Dick and Anne have seen shows in London because it got mentioned that they go to the pantomime, I think. Also, Dick fancies himself as the top performer in the world, I think, you know. He always wants to be able to do the best, funniest stuff. (laughs) Agreed. Back at the farm, Anne imagines Mr Penruthlin as a wrecker, fierce and determined. They wonder if Grandad really did see the light and resolved to visit the old house and tower. Suddenly, coincidentally, (laughs) a storm's coming. George wants to go and see if the light will flash. This felt a little bit lazy writing. It was extremely convenient that it was like five minutes after they find out that about it that a storm just happens to roll in at that very moment. 
In chapter 7, Mr. Penruthlin, through Mrs. Penruthlin, tells them that he may have to go out in the night to look after Jenny the horse, so no one is to worry if the dogs bark. Not suspicious at all. No way. I love that. That kind of, um, now nobody is to worry if you hear this noise, and immediately it's like, well, now we're going to worry, because you've told us not to worry. The storm rages. Julian tells George they would get soaked if they went out. But later, when Julian and Dick can't sleep, they decide to go out anyway, without George. They look in on Jenny the horse and hear a cough, and as they walk to the viewpoint, Dick becomes aware that they're following someone. But then, as they continue, a hand grabs Dick's shoulder and just misses Julian. Dick kicks out and runs away, hiding under a hedge. After the man has gone, the boys find each other. They didn't see the man, but as they hunt for Dick's torch, the man returns. They follow him back to the farm. It's Mr. Penruthlin. Why was he out at night? I had some concerns in this chapter. Nothing really to do with the main plot, but they recognise Mr. Penruthlin's cough. But when he grabs Dick, Dick shouts, let me go. And (laughs) Penruthlin doesn't recognise him. But I mean, fair enough. Maybe he was surprised. Um, and then Dick wriggles like an eel. His shirt was almost torn off his back in his struggles. He kicked out, and for one moment his captor loosened his grasp. That was enough for Dick. He ripped himself away and left his shirt in the man's hand. And then towards the end of the chapter, Dick says, Come on, let's go in. I feel a bit chilly with practically no shirt on. <laughs> but at the start of this book, which is quite a common theme with this, somebody says, oh, you don't have a lot of luggage. And they say, oh, yeah, we don't bring very many clothes on holiday. We don't have changes of clothes. So what is Dick going to wear now that <laughs> his maybe one shirt has been ripped in half? He's just shirtless throughout the whole thing. Do you not know? <laughs> it's just it's got nothing. <laughs> oh, Oh, okay. We think he presumably would have a shirt which he wears as like everyday one. And if they're going to church, they probably he probably has a Sunday best. Okay, so maybe he's just wearing his nice shirt. Because there was a book where all the children roamed the countryside in their school blazers. So Dick could just wear his <laughs> Sunday best shirt for the rest of the adventure. That's no big deal. Um, Yeah, he's probably wearing one and got one spare. I was concerned, though, at what he mm. would wear for the remaining chapters. Was it possibly like a pyjama shirt? Maybe that as they got up. I don't know. I certainly wouldn't want to go out into a storm in my pyjamas if I had to get back into bed (laughs) afterwards. I'd be horrid. Oh, goodness. Who knows? In the picture, they both look like they're wearing jungle-style khakis, like short sleeve shirts and um, above-the-knee shorts. So it's sort of hard to tell. Yeah, they do. They certainly look a bit more prepared for going out than I imagine them to to be oh here's there's a plot point here sorry earlier on in the chapter it says they're about to go out right says dick i simply can't go to sleep he sits up feeling for his clothes they pulled on as few clothes as possible so they did go out quite light even though it is a storm they can't sleep because of the heat though so it's obviously a warm storm a warm storm yeah it does yeah i think it does say here actually um they pulled on as few clothes as possible, for the night was still thundery and hot. There we go. Wow, there we go. This actually has been a bit consistent Consistent there. So good for you, Edith. Well done. Well done. In Chapter 8, at breakfast, the boys stare at Mr. Penruthlin. Mrs. Penruthlin says he's been up half the night with Jenny the horse. 
They tell Anne and George, and George doesn't even sulk. I was amazed by that, considering about the fuss that she made in the last book when I was on here last time, when they were out off on the hike on the moors and they were going in search of the spook trains. She stormed off into the nearest town at one point. She was so upset for being left out. She just completely shrugs it off at this point. I think maybe they've had so many adventures now. She's almost got used to being sidelined by the boys all the time. However, if you're reading Blighton and you're looking for some content, you've got a good few pages there of George sulking. You would have thought it was certainly more interesting read than podding peas or whatever they were doing. (laughs) Anne is sad that Mr Penruthlin is probably up to no good. Jan appears and says he saw the light. The boys agree to go again the next night. Mrs Penruthlin tells them the Barneys are coming and can they help clear the barn. Julian sees a man, Sid, carrying a pantomime horse's head and asks if it's Clopper. Sid says it is, and that he is the back legs and Mr Binks is the front. He also says he's not allowed to let it out of his sight or the governor will be furious. The governor is an angry fellow who warns Sid and Binks to stay away from those kids. That doesn't stop Julian and Dick asking to have a go as Clopper. They refused, but given a demonstration themselves. I'm just going to, to say about the illustration in this chapter. Actually, see, is that supposed to be Yan, do we think? The urchiny looking child. Yes, because Anne looks like a middle-aged woman and <laughs> Yan looks like some ape <laughs> that has just crawled out <laughs> of the woods. It's like, it's, what is that? <laughs> After complimenting her on the, like the uh, a previous picture, it was like, goodness me, is that even a human? Do you know what's funny is on page 83, there's another picture where Anne looks like a middle-aged woman and Jan looks like, like an ape that's just crawled in. Even worse, because he's in the yeah. shadows. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. It's a, It must be the way in which people are dressed. Yeah. As well. But there is times where you can look at people who were getting married in, like around about this time in the 50s, and you see, oh, they were 20 and 21, and they look like they are mid-40s. Yeah. There is something about young people didn't develop a style until, at least in Britain, until at least the very late 50s mm. and well into the 60s, yeah. that people just dress like adults. You were a child and then you were an adult. There was no teenage yeah. years or youth. It was child, 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 moustache. <laughs> you didn't phase yourself into adulthood. It was just overnight. I mean, well, pe- at this time, people were still working at 12 yeah. in some yeah. circumstances. So childhood was a pretty brief state anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm still looking at that picture. <laughs> he looks like a like a small caveman that somehow skipped a timeline. Yeah, that's what that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's... Like his weird kind of like clawed hands and or like he is just like crawled out of a car wreck <laughs> yeah. or something. All his like shredded clothes <laughs> and things yeah. like that. I mean, this is the way she writes Yan that he is. This is more of the class kind of things because she does this with all of her. There's either like the middle class nice kids or these sort of feral working, like semi animal kind of children. Like uh, the girl has been in a a couple of previous ones as well. Oh, Ragamuffin Joe. Yes, who pretty much lives like, well, like Stick of the Dump, doesn't she? 
She was happy to sleep under the caravan. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, of course. <laughs> In chapter nine, the Barneys have set up the barn and Mrs. Penruthlin is getting all the food ready. It's revealed that the reason no one can understand Mr. Penruthlin is that he never wears his teeth. They all head to bed and the boys head out again without George. Jan joins them and they see the light. Julian says they're going to find the house with the tower to work out what's happening. Yeah, this felt uh, this felt like another bit of padding to me. But I don't know why she she revealed the thing about the teeth this uh, uh, early on. Because I think that would have been a nice little twist for the end, personally. Yeah, when he, fir- when he starts... Well, when, yeah, when, we'll get to that yes, part. Yes. But yes, I agree. In chapter 10, they head back and see a light in the barn. They think it must be the Barneys, but check anyway, and it's Mr. Penruthlin going through the Barneys' belongings. Oh my goodness, that scallywag. (laughs) When they're back inside, they wake the girls to tell them everything. They agree they'll go to the tower the day after tomorrow. The next morning, Mrs. Penruthlin points out how well she and Mr. Penruthlin slept, which is such a strange thing for an adult to do to a child. (laughs) A group of children. It is, isn't it? And then the whole day is taken up helping the Barneys. It's revealed Sid actually sleeps with Clopper's head. At dinner, Julian checks that there were no wrecks the night before, and there weren't. They set up for the festivities using Mrs. Penruthlin's 200-year-old tablecloth, and the villagers start arriving. And Julian has a slightly different opinion of the Barney's show than Dick had, because at the end of the chapter, Julian's at the barn door helping sell the tickets, and he says, Hurrah! It will soon begin! Walk up, everyone! Finest show in the world! Come along in your hundreds! Come along! <laughs> He's really into it. I love how much he gets into it. He like he sort of his like inner actor comes out or his inner inner carnival barker yes. comes out. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it is really good. I liked it a lot. In chapter eleven, Mrs. Penruthlin has given Jan a bath much to his disapproval. Grandad arrives, first time in twenty years, and the show <laughs> begins. The show was a great success. Although it could not have been simpler. The jokes were old, the play acted was even older, the singing was a bit flat, and the dancing not as good as the third form of a girls' school. But it was so merry and smiling and idiotic and good-natured that it went with a terrific swing from start to finish. Now there's a review, if ever there was one. Yes, I think something has to be said about poor Yan's sort of forced bath. (laughs) Because how old is Yan supposed to be? Do we know? Because I, I sort of imagined him as being about the same age as the rest of the five. I assumed he was a little bit younger. I, th- I put him at ten. It still seems a little. I mean, obviously, looking at things in like modern attitudes, it just seems a bit strange to bath somebody else's child, especially against their will. And especially as she does it when he's fully clothed <laughs> as well. She sort of throws him in the bath and forces him to wash himself. Oh, yeah. It just seems, I don't know, it just seems a little inappropriate for some reason. It's kind of pointed out that it's him and his granddad and nobody else. And and I suppose, and I suppose in a way, actually doing it, him being fully clothed is certainly the more appropriate way if you're going to have give someone a non-consensual yeah, bath. And I guess if if he is ten, or even if he is ten, he's very much infantilized. Well, he barely speaks, does he? 
so you sort of get this idea that I don't know, perhaps like he hasn't really been taught how to speak mm. very well, perhaps something like that, because obviously been raised by his uh, grandfather, who isn't portrayed as um, being the most chatty person in the uh, in the world. So it's just, it's just an odd depiction of uh, of him. Yeah, again, a very strange bit of information to put in the book. She's got to get that word count. <laughs> yeah. Dick is very keen to have a go as Clopper, another skill he wishes he could take back to school to show people. <laughs> Yay! That, that's another thing we should have kept track on, all the things that Dick wishes he could do. Oh, we should. Yeah. After the show, they feast. The surly governor doesn't eat with them, so Julian and Dick take a tray out to the barn. There's no one there, and they catch sight of Clopper's costume and try it on. I just want to point out that two sweaty men sweat in that costume most nights and have no facility to wash it properly. Oh, yeah. Oh, it must be rank. It just, it almost makes me think of the times back at school in PE when if you left your kit at home, you had to go into this horrid, like, chest yeah. of unwashed, unsorted, like, deserted mm-hmm. PE kits. And just the smell of it, that, it, it was just absolutely horrendous it's the sort of thing which i think has scarred me for life because occasionally i'll get a whiff of something similar to that and have Mm. a kind of physical shudder imagining that i'm back in pe at school horrid yeah pe at school is the worst you know i did a walking event a few weeks ago and the meeting point for it was at my old secondary school the whole school's been redone apart from the sports hall and if you wanted to use the toilets before the event started, it was in my in the old PE rooms, which I guess are the current PE rooms. So I went into the changing room where I used to get changed for PE and it was just a horrific experience. It was kind of wild because they hadn't updated anything. It was just as nasty as it always was. But yeah, just just a horrible, a horrible feeling <laughs> being in that room. And I like I walked around it a bit and it just Oh, uh, yeah, it made me feel as horrible as it ever did as a teenager. Just the sense of despair in the air. I hated PE so much. Yes, me too. Yep, and me. The absolute worst thing in the world ever. Yep. (laughs) And yet we're all still here. (laughs) Yeah. Well done. We got through it. We made it through those PE lessons. And it, to be honest, for the amount of horror it brought into my life at that age, it was only, I think it was only one hour a week. Oh, we had to do two hours a week. It was a, it was a long hour, especially in those winter months of playing football in the freezing cold. Yes. Hockey in the cold. I used to be terrified to go anywhere near the ball because I thought someone is going to accidentally hit my leg with that wooden hockey stick and it's so cold that my leg is just going to shatter like ice. (laughs) Well, do you know what, Jen? You never have to do PE again. I know, never. Never. And you know what's fun now is when people want to play a sport, you get to choose if you want to join in and when I do join in, they're often fun as an adult. Absolutely. How did we get here? We're we're talking about the sweaty PE kit smell. Oh, yeah, because you told us about how much Clopper would smell. (laughs) Yes, Clopper would absolutely stink. So here we go. Julian and Dick are inside Clopper. And Julian finds a hole inside the inside of Clopper's head. But it's where Binks keeps his cigarettes. So add cigarette smoke to that smell as well, guys. This is sounding more and more enticing, isn't it? Oh, 
They hear the governor coming and clop out of the building. Then they realise <laughs> they're stuck. In chapter 12, they head to the kitchen window hoping to alert Anne or George. But instead, Mr. Penruthlin, laughing his head off, releases them from their horsey prison. <laughs> the next day, Mrs. Penruthlin gives them a picnic and sends them off. They send Yan away, having actually invited him previously, and then head to the tower. It's covered in weeds, and no one has walked up to it for a long time. But then they notice oil has been spilt on the steps, so someone had been there. Mm. I put a note in here saying this is very similar to past adventures. The the tumble-down tower with one sign that someone's been there recently. I think it's because we did it in the last book. I think because we went up a crumbling tower that you didn't know how to get into in the last book, so maybe it's a bit too fresh. Yeah. Also, when it talks about because it's another time when they have an enormous meal in this chapter, this is the book with lashings of things in it. This is, you know, the stereotype oh, yeah, of the... lashings twice. Twice. The, I think it's lashings of boiled eggs and lashings of lettuce at uh, two points. Mm. And then apparently never again in the entire series of the, at least the original print run. That they, and they never say lashings oh. of ginger beer, not even once. Yeah. No, they never do. Well, they don't. They don't drink enough fluids. Full stop. To have lashings of any, <laughs> anything to drink. I think it probably all comes down to the comic strip presents. Uh, yes, you know, Dawn I agree. French and Jennifer Saunders. That I think it probably comes from that, and that yeah, they had had mm. lashings of things, but never of ginger beer. No, it's one of those false memories that people have, or, or false associations, certainly. In chapter 13, they head up the tower. It's in a very dangerous condition. Julian reckons the wrecker's way must be nearby. He thinks the light was flashed out to sea, and then when the ship was wrecked, brought over to the other side of the tower to signal to shore. And who was there the other night? Mr. Penruthlin? But he's not a wrecker, he's a smuggler. And because they hadn't seen any sign of someone having walked to the tower, they think the entrance to the secret way must be near the tower too. Then Anne hears a noise. So Julian heads down first with Timmy. In chapter 14, Julian finds nothing. Timmy sniffs at a corner, but there's nothing there. They search for the secret way, and I'm a little unsure if the wrecker's way and the secret way are the same thing, because... They're sort of interchangeable. I think, I'm get, I think is the wrecker's way something out at sea, possibly? I was thinking that it was like some like submerged rocks which you could cross over in the... Uh, the water but i might be completely wrong with this and that they were looking for some kind of secret passage in the tower but there has been a lot of times in the famous five books i've sort of the kind of technical details have sort of gone over my head a bit i didn't quite understand like Mm. in the the one with the spook trains about how that system actually worked what was going on underneath so oh yeah so sometimes i feel like i need to sort of plot things out on paper to see what what is actually being said we, yeah we probably could have done with another half chapter on it <laughs> yes exactly there's plenty of plenty of bits that she could have padded out yeah and of course she also could have let us know when timmy did his sniffer dog training oh yeah there was now that as well. a sniffer dog and can go from oil splash to oil splash and that leads him to the fireplace and that is seen as one of the like the hardest jobs to actually train a, a dog to do is to become a sniffer dog, to be introduced to a smell and then track it. Not but, Timmy. 
Timmy is written in such a way where he pretty much understands English, doesn't yeah. he? Like full sentences <laughs> yeah. that he can <laughs> interpret. He does. I think Shadow, my dog, would be able to track somebody if they dropped little crumbs of cake along the way. But yeah. other than that, she wouldn't follow splash to splash of oil on command. <laughs> Dogs are surprisingly quick to learn as soon as there is, a, a, if they're tracking food, then all of a sudden they become little Einsteins suddenly. If you sing Happy Birthday anywhere near Shadow, she comes running because she knows she gets cake. Wow. She can be in a different part of of the house. A different part of the country. That's, yep. that's extraordinary because you yep. would have thought that would be a rare enough occasion that it usually mm-hmm. takes like very frequent repetition for a dog to actually understand it. Um, yep. That's, yeah, that is very impressive. However, it was quite sad once when my nephew came over and was making pretend birthday cakes out of Play-Doh and he made us all sing and she came oh, running no. in so happy that there was going to be a cake and we had to sort of find a biscuit for her in the end <laughs> because she just, yeah, was very disappointed. <laughs> Bless her heart. Right. Where are we? So Timmy leads them to the fireplace. Timmy is shoved in first... And the others follow. And yet again, Timmy falls a distance. And so they set about looking for him in the passage. They hear him barking and head towards the noise. He's been shut in a room. They all <laughs> go in the room and then they're bolted into the room. Have they not learned? Yeah, why, you put, you, How many rooms have they been bolted yes, into? You put, you put one at least one person outside as lookout. Or you just send George in and the rest of you, you wait outside. All you're doing is getting a dog out of a room. There's no need for all of you to go in there. <laughs> no. Or you just open the door and say, come here, Timmy, because he wasn't tied up. Was he? Anyway, they all go in and they're bolted in. In chapter 15, the voice behind the door assures them that he'll let them out tomorrow, and he also knows that they have food, so they'll be all right. So they eat, they play noughts and crosses, and then they sleep. Timmy wakes up because he hears a noise. George wakes too. Jan is at the door and he rescues them. Hooray for Jan! The food thing, especially if you're being locked in somewhere, is really quite bizarre isn't it do you, it makes me think sometimes does Enid Blyton think that if you don't eat for a few hours you will die maybe because you I think the famous five will <laughs> yes. die if they don't eat for a few hours we always need to be told that they have plenty of food whenever they are trapped even though we know they're going to be rescued in the morning we need to make sure that we need to know that they won't be skipping a meal doing it that they will eat yeah, but she's not afraid of putting them in peril, i.e. they've someone's fired a gun in the yeah, last one. But heaven forbid they should ever be hungry. <laughs> Although, that's how we knew the last villain was the worst villain, because they were locked in a tower oh, without with food, Professor yes. Terry Kane, and there was no food. Yeah. I mean, I, but it's so straight, the way that the, the guy outside the, the door points it out said, I've seen that you've all got... <laughs> Like bags of you, you must have some food in there so you won't go hungry. It's I know because that's how villains speak. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is that going for, can I get anything else for you? Anyone needs a magazine or something while you're in there? <laughs> now, before I lock you in, does anybody need the toilet? <laughs> I always wonder where they go to the toilet when they're locked in these rooms, but 
That would be a very surprising detail for Enid Blyton to suddenly <laughs> yeah, put in one of them. She's not going to make up 100 words if the word count with that issue. <laughs> in chapter 16, Jan is the hero. He was watching them from afar, and when they didn't emerge, he went to the farm to check they hadn't returned. Then he knew something bad had happened. He even takes them the wrecker's way. They hear someone coming, and the boys are sure it's Mr. Penruthlin. Jan points out a motorboat out to sea, and the man rows out to it. They decide to make an escape up the wrecker's way, and Jan tells them it leads to the farm. Very handy for Mr. Penruthlin. They arrive to an open trapdoor. In chapter 17, they close the trapdoor and pile heavy things onto it. As they head to the house, they hear a whisper, I'm here! It's the governor, and he soon disappears round the corner. Mrs. Penruthlin is in a state. The children have been lost for hours. Julian sits her down. They have a lot to tell her. She is furious to hear Mr. Penruthlin accused of anything, and then he arrives, wet through and speaking words. When Mrs. Penruthlin tells him what the children said, Mr. Penruthlin reveals he's been working with the police, and Julian tells him they need to go to the trap door and catch the smugglers. See, this is where you needed the bit about the teeth, that you had the false teeth, and that's why we couldn't uh, uh, understand him, in my opinion. Yeah, because he comes in and speaks words, and they're like, oh, we can understand yes. you. And she, yeah, she could have just nice... gone, see, see the difference it makes when you put your teeth in, Mr. Ben yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like that. I also, when I, as I was reading this, I was kind of hoping that... Actually, both of the Penrufflins were in on this, and Mrs. Penrufflin was only furious because her husband had been caught. And so <laughs> I love that the idea of it because she reacts so angrily uh, with them. I just thought, oh, she's she's in on it too, and she's gonna absolutely go ballistic at these kids and probably lock them in a room as well, possibly even without food. Poison them. Yes. <laughs> um. That would have been great because she was the one earlier going, oh, we've been asleep the whole night. <laughs> yes. See, the clues are all there. And then it just ends up with the famous five locked in a room together and the Penrudlands throwing some <laughs> drug-fueled party with the Barneys. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's the alternative version. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly would have been unexpected. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. But what actually happens in chapter 18 is they reach the trapdoor, but the stuff has been removed and the smugglers escaped. All was lost. They return to the house to sleep, and it occurs to Julian that he didn't tell Mr. Penruthling about the governor sneaking around that night. Turns out they're drug smugglers. Mr. Penruthling says it's unlikely the governor wouldn't, would keep them on him for fear of being searched. Then Dick snatches Clopper's head from Sid, and it clicks with Julian why the governor is so protective of it. I was absolutely gobsmacked that it is drugs. That it's actual, honest <laughs> to God, drug smuggling in this book. It just seemed so... Just I was just... I had not anticipated it was going to be that. It could have been jewel smuggling or something like that, but I did not anticipate the international drugs trade. Good twist there. How is it that if you asked people who were aware of the famous five, that they would think they definitely said lashings of ginger beer, but would have no idea that they foiled a drugs an international drug smuggling ring? <laughs> yes. Isn't that so strange? 
It is. It just feels so out of out of what we imagine the famous five actually doing, the investigations that they go into. We don't I mean, we know that they are foiling smugglers, but it's never as put as like as blatantly as it being drugs. That they are drug smugglers. No. Crazy. And there is drugs hidden in a horse's head. There are, because in chapter 19, Dick, panting, hands the head to Mr. Penruthlin as the governor tries desperately to retrieve it, but a farmer restrains him. Mr. Penruthlin reaches into the horse's head, and in the place where Binks's cigarettes are, is another compartment containing a small packet. Sid and Mr. Binks are furious. The Barneys only really put up with the governor because of his money, and now they know it's drug money. Sid and Binks decide they'll get a donkey instead. So Mr. Penrothlin keeps Clopper. Though over lunch, he says he's going to give Clopper to some friends. Friends who don't know how to undo the zip. Julian and Dick. The end. Hooray. That was a wonderful joke. Like, this book ended on such a high note with mad old Mr. Penrothlin just laughing his head off because they can't (laughs) undo the zip. And now, and now Dick can perform at school and show off to his friends. This is all of his dreams. Oh, of course he can, yes. How are they going to get a pantomime horse home on bikes for four miles from the farm to the station? Oh, Julian's figured out how to wear the head now. So he'll just look out of the eye holes. <laughs> oh, the my neck. goodness. Or it would be so amazing if it was like a tandem bike <laughs> and they were both dressed as the horse cycling. <laughs> I think that's a Monty Python sketch. It certainly could be. And my last note was, I really feel like it's missing an end chapter. Just a bit of a summing up of how actually the whole drugs operation worked. Oh, yeah, because usually we hear from the police, don't we? Yeah. Because there must be other people involved and not just the governor. Yes. And if Grandad's seen the light three times this year, the Barneys have only been once this year, so who else is doing it? That's true. There's something that there's more to this story than we were actually told. It certainly feels like the story just stops rather than ends, doesn't it? It doesn't really come to a proper conclusion. It's just is one of those things of turn the page and oh, there's no more book left. That was I was amazed that was the end. There's no real ending for Jan. Oh, yeah, what happens to Jan? Nothing. Just carries on as normal. And, yeah, it's really bizarre. Especially as Grandad, they seem to write him as being about 105 years old. It's like, you do think, what is his future going to be? It's like, is this is he actually going to turn full feral and he's going to have to be raised by squirrels or something in the Cornish <laughs> landscape? Or... Probably. There's a whole spin-off series there. It could be quite a fascinating one, actually. I don't, I cannot remember, and obviously it could, it could be a potential spoiler for the future. So I don't know if he shows up again, but it does feel like he was kind of forgotten by the end of it. He gets his sort of moment of heroism, and then is. Then he vanishes, doesn't he? Hmm, very strange. Have we got anything else we want to say about the story? I liked the story. I thought it was, a, you know, I liked it having a Cornish setting. I liked the kind of sense that there was a genuine red herring in here with Mr. Penrothlin, whereas in other books it has been, this is who you're supposed to be suspicious of, and it turns out that it is him at the end, or her at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. That there was actually a little bit of misdirection. It made you think one thing and it ended up being another at the uh, the end. 
And so I enjoyed it for that much. I just think that a bit of pacing problems, there's a bit of padding in, bit where it didn't need to be. And she's probably running out of ideas by this point because she never intended this to run for as long as it has. And also some things that go unexplained. In what capacity is Mr. Penrushlin working with the police? <laughs> this is my alternate theory that that he and Mrs. Penrushlin are tied up in this some way and she was just acting on her feet when she went started accusing them of things she thought she'd been rumbled so when the police don't arrive and julian and dick and Anne and george are like should the police be coming to you know deal with it and he's like oh no i'll oh yeah i've called them they'll be they'll be ages so i'll take him and and then oh okay interesting (laughs) i mean it was a bit of a strange thing of them to go immediately to mrs penrothlin when they hadn't entirely positively identified him they just sort of made an assumption but even still i think that there is more to the story that that we weren't privy to and who was the voice behind the door wasn't that the governor i guess it must have been the governor but you're right there must have been somebody else involved in this it can't just have been him by himself oh that's true because the governor was waiting for someone in the barn wasn't he so maybe it was just a random person that we didn't meet for a story that's so short and got so much padding there was so much maybe she was just short of time yeah she might have been a little bit bored with the story maybe she maybe she based the whole book around that little poem that she came up with and then didn't forgot to fill in any more of the details (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel like maybe another draft or two of it and it could have been a more bulked out story definitely jen any more thoughts feelings i liked this one i thought that the baddie was going to be mr penruthlin the whole time until the end when it turned out he was with the police because he said (laughs) he was with the police but i was sure he was up to no good and honestly we still haven't got that confirmed that he wasn't oh yeah that's true and we never found out how jenny the horse got on if she was well again (laughs) oh well then she wasn't ever unwell was she wasn't that just a big lie which makes me think mrs penruthlin must have known that mr penruthlin was working for the police yeah, this story doesn't check out entirely, does it? I, I don't entirely no. believe her. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit weird, actually. I enjoyed it reading it and finishing it. I felt good about it. But now that we're talking about it, I realise there's, there's a lot that hasn't been finished. Yeah, it's a really nice story and the description of the places and setting it in Cornwall is absolutely lovely. But when you do what we do, we are going to pick holes in it and things, which is a shame. But it doesn't stop it from being great and enjoyable and wonderful. Yes, I I very I did very much enjoy it. I had a nice experience reading it. Yeah, same. And also I felt like the story started a bit faster in this one than it has in some of the <laughs> okay. previous ones, so that was nice. I thought it was quite telling that I think that the nineteen nineties TV adaptation began about page seventy five of the book. <laughs> they skipped out an enormous amount of the uh of the <laughs> they, book. we didn't have to watch the children shell the peas. No, we didn't. And we didn't even by the time it begins, they've already been in Cornwall for quite some time at that at that point. Although the other strange thing is is for inexplicable reasons, they are in Somerset in that um adaptation. I don't know why, um, especially as Somerset isn't particularly famous for shipwrecks like Cornwall is, but mm. there you go. No, he just he just specifies that, oh, these all these Somerset lanes look the same. Is that a bit strange? Okay. That yeah. is strange. And also, 
in the 90s version, when the Barneys arrive, they throw out what is probably 200 pieces of paper to... So much littering. To five, or, to five mm. children, because Jan's there as well, to five children. And it's on a country lane, so nobody would be going past. And they literally throw oh loads into the air. <laughs> and the children sort of get one. They've got all that drug money. Printing paper, that doesn't mean anything to them. They just throw it maybe yes they've got money to throw away in the um the 90s adaptation the guy playing sid at the front of the horse i thought for such a tiny role i thought he was so good that and especially as it's kind of like an underwritten role he brought so much character it to it that i went and looked him up online there's someone called david shaw parker who's still working now he does lots of voice work stage work and uh, things like that and I spent a whole evening there for like watching like whole uh, like show reels of things he's done in the past. I kind of think he might be the most underrated British actor in history. Yeah. He is so <laughs> good. I mean, honestly, I say have a look for uh, other stuff of his online because he is really good. And he's been a surprising number of things. He was in Muppet Christmas Carol and yes. all of these Brilliant. sort of uh, uh, things. So it's what, like one of those actors is like, I would quite gladly like keep an eye out for anything that he's in because i think he is a bit of a national treasure and people don't seem to know who he is so david shaw parker look out for him now it is very strange to come across a british actor who's worked so much that i don't know about because it's one of my sort of specialist subjects but he's never sort of come up on my radar as somebody whose name i've remembered yeah i would say definitely uh have a look at his uh like various compilation clips which i'm assuming that he has put together or his agents put together and you suddenly realize oh he's he's one of those actors who has never been out of work mm. but has never become a household name like he probably should do very interesting so yeah, keep an eye out for him. Well, as we're talking about the 90s version, we'll play you the clip. And we sort of covered most of the what happens in the 90s. However, in the end, well, no, throughout the show, Jan asks for sweets. He sort of demands sweets from all the children. And Dick remembers that there are some peppermints in Clopper's head. And that's how he finds the drugs at the end. But he still then gives Jan the sweets that would have been sat next to the drug packet in the horse's head. Yeah, that packet, who knows how securely it was actually tied up. That stuff could have got everywhere. When Dick holds the packet of drugs, he actually sort of rubs his fingers together like it's powder. <laughs> yes. So that's definitely <laughs> going to have got into the paper bag with the peppermints in. And I doubt the peppermints were wrapped in the first place. No. But in this clip... We're going to hear Peter Stockbridge, who plays Grandad. Uh, Richard Allen is Jan, and the regular five. The episode was adapted by Julia Jones and directed by Tim Leandro. You were saying the wreckers. Uh, not a nice lot, but poor folk with children to feed. I remember my old dad. I... He was one that set the false light burning. But there were six of us little ones and hardly a rag to our backs. Can you blame him? I don't know. I used to hold a lantern. Little lad I was, that bemused the ship. And I drowned, of course. Washing up like... Please don't say any more. Oh, well. Times was hard. See yon tower? Yes. Oh, well. This is the only spot from the hills where you can see that tower. 
That's where they flashed the light. I saw it by chance one night when I was up here lambing. And that night, there was a ship on the rocks. It was the only one who ever saw it from Lambert. And I told no one. Not even my dad. Why didn't you tell anyone? Did I want my dad in jail? Oh dear, how awful for you. I wasn't comfortable, no. You must be jolly glad it's all in the past. Is it, though? What do you mean? Boy, that light flatty still. No! They do. On stormy nights, I've seen it with my own eyes. And always about this time of the year. And were there rats? None that I ever heard of. Wow, this is some dramatic, famous fiving. Granddad is really almost quite frightening in this. No, he was definitely someone who was uh, enjoying his having a little monologue in that because I thought he did a very nice job of uh, building a bit of atmosphere, which I think uh, we definitely needed as we had so much build-up to meeting Grandad. Mm, yeah, that's true. It's always good to play a role like that, though, where you can be, and this happened, and it was like this, and it was a dark and stormy night. Yeah, everyone wants to be able to bring a bit of atmosphere to their role didn't they get your teeth into it certainly yes and now we've got a clip from the 1970s version the 70s is sort of similar story but the drugs are swapped out for diamonds and they swap the part of sid and the governor so governor is sort of they're both villains which is not how it is in the book but the governor is sort of more charming a lot of patter and sid is very like properly aggressive for no real reason and Jan is played by one of Britain's most handsome and hard-working actors, Rupert Graves. You may know him as Lestrade in Sherlock, or for Maurice, or Madness of King George. But he's worked solidly since he played this role. And he's probably as old as the Famous Five in this, and he's not a dirty shoeless urchin. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he definitely doesn't seem like a sort of abandoned child. Like in the uh, in the 90s version, he is, like you said, shoeless and dirty. And in this one, he actually looks just like a normal kid. He looks a little bit like he's in an 80s boy band. Yeah, I can see that. I'm guessing this is one of his very first roles, I would imagine. It was. I didn't have this episode on video, but I suspect if I did, Rupert Graves would have been a rival to my first actual childhood crush, who was Samuel West as Caspian in the BBC's Chronicles of Narnia. I remember that series. And also I was reading a review of this episode and it's actually impossible to mention Rupert Graves without mentioning how handsome he is. just one of those things (laughs) so here is the clip it was adapted by gail renard and directed by mike connor you see those rocks down by the tremendous coast couldn't miss them that's where the pirates came to wreck ships how back up the coast was a lighthouse to keep the ships that sailed around here off the rocks if they followed that light they were safe but on stormy nights the pirates had set another light further down the coast the captains would get confused and sometimes their ships would run onto the rocks. That's terrible. What sort of a person would do that? My great granddad, for one. Your grandfather? How was he mixing? He was the pirate that set the false light burning. But there was only one place from where you could see it. Out at sea. He had to be careful to make sure it couldn't be seen by anyone inland. How do you know all this? My great granddad told me before he died. You know, there must have been sailing ships in those days. Been fantastic to have lived then. Yes, but it's still very dangerous, because on dark and stormy nights, 
The pirate's light still flashes. Impossible. Oh, no, it isn't. The pirate's light is flashing again. I know, because I've seen it. Again, very dramatic. I love Dick in the 70s series. He's so cute. <laughs> I found the, the 70s one was quite slow going for for me. I thought that, uh, it, it felt like a very long, over the two, because it obviously spread over two parts, it felt like it was pretty lengthy adventure. So what have we learned from Five Go Down to the Sea? I've learned that the famous Five foiled a drug smuggling operation. I learned an excellent poem by Trey, Paul and Penn, You May Know the Cornish Men. I learned that Cornwall is a lovely place for holiday, but I did know that already. Uh, I've learned that we must all immediately go on holiday to Cornwall and be fed up by Mrs Penruthlin. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. I also learned of the existence of David Shaw Parker as well. So, Well, that go. was a good one, a real world lesson. Oh, and I had a real world lesson that the wreckers aren't real. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I had a real world lesson that the wreckers are a real story and not just made up by Edith Blyton. Gosh, we've all learned so much. <laughs> we have learned a lot this episode. We have. This has been a real, a real learner. And who are you going to put forward for the hero of the book? I'm not sure, but I think, I think Dick for nicking Clopper's head at the end. Oh yeah, that's fair. I'd actually forgotten about that bit. I was I'm I'm putting my vote in for Timmy though, because he is even while the rest of the kids are being really quite unnecessarily mean to Yan, he is the one who sees that he is a good boy and should be friends with them. And Timmy is proven right at the end because Yan rescues them. Oh that's true. So Timmy. I have to say, until you started talking, Charlie, I was Team Dick as well. But now that you said that about Timmy, it also reminds me that Timmy is a sniffer dog too now. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's true. So maybe Timmy should be the hero. I can go with Timmy. I'm still leaning towards Dick. But with three of us, it's great. Just majority votes. So Timmy is the hero of book 12 because he's a sniffer dog now and he's kind to Yan. Hooray. Yay, Timmy! Yeah. Well done, Timmy. What can we expect next time? Well, Jen, we can expect Henry, Sniffer, and lots of horses. Oh, good, I love horses. Real horses this time, not pantomime ones. <laughs> <laughs> so they, yeah, real horses smell really good. And as I've learned tonight, pantomime horses smell really bad. So. <laughs> This is Ooh. Five Go to Mystery More. Certainly, it's an enticing title, I have to say that. Mm. I, it's not one that I remember, though. Well, you'll have to tune in next time, Charlie. Certainly will, yes. And you'll absolutely have to come back and join us for a future adventure. Yes, please do. Oh, I would love to. Have you got anything that you'd like to plug before we say goodbye? Uh, what would I like to plug? Well, in um, just over a month ago, the final book of my uh, Bristol Murders series, this is book four, came out. It's now available on ebook and paperback. Ooh. And that is The City at Night. And it's, uh, yeah, the, like I said, the final installment. And on top of that, there is my Weird Bristol Twitter, which has just passed 5,000 followers, wow. which I'm very Ooh. proud of. And yes, it's sort of a daily tweet about something you might not know, something a bit unusual about Bristol's history. So that's at Weird Bristol. Love it. Well, thank you very much for being our 
I'm going to call you our favourite special guest. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. I believe I am the only one, but... Well, that shouldn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, you're still the favourite. That doesn't, that doesn't have anything to do with it at all. Well, thank you very much. It's always a joy. And if you want to join in, you can go to Twitter, which is at Famous5Pod. You can email us famous5pod at gmail.com. And our website is www.famous5pod.wordpress.com. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Famous Five podcast. And please join us next month for more adventures. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.